I'm Jonathan Mosin and this is Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. On the show this week, it shouldn't be this hard to cast a secret ballot. Is Ira doing its paid customers a disservice by continuing to offer free calls, voiceover being quiet on a call, and more? Mosin at Large Podcast. Wonderful to have you back. It's episode 201 today. Did you know that 201 is also the area code for Beats of New Jersey? It covers many places in New Jersey, including Hoboken, where Frank Sinatra was born in 1915. But I seriously doubt that area code 201 was being used in Hoboken in 1915, when old Blue Eyes, the chairman of the board, was born. It's interesting because Frank Sinatra has those multiple names, doesn't he? I mean, you've got Elvis, he's the king of rock and roll, and you've got Louis Armstrong. He was was Satchmo. But Frank Sinatra, he was called Old Blue Eyes and the chairman of the board. I guess he was just so impactful that he had two names. He was probably called a lot of other things as well. Good and bad. Interesting, colourful character was Frank Sinatra. And all this comes to mind because it's episode 201. How about that? It has been an interesting old week, so I've got quite a bit to tell you about before we get into your interesting contributions this week. I'll start with the fact that we have been voting in New Zealand. We've just concluded our local government elections. These happen every three years for our local councils, local territorial authorities, and various other bits and bobs. And for a long time, voter turnout has been a bit dodgy, a bit dodgy. Somebody came up with a bright idea many moons ago now that one way to increase voter turnout would be to switch the whole thing to postal voting so that you could vote from the comfort of your own home. But voter turnout has continued to decline at an alarming rate. What that also means is we have a major accessibility problem with local government elections. When it comes to our national elections or referenda, a few years ago, Blind Citizens New Zealand, the blindness advocacy organisation in New Zealand, in conjunction with the Electoral Commission, who administer national elections here, devised a pretty cool scheme. It's not perfect, because if you can't use the telephone, there are some issues for deaf-blind people, for example, but it does provide for the casting of a secret ballot. So there are various checks and balances in place. So what happens is, before a national election, you register the fact that you are a print-impaired voter. You call a number and you do this. And when you do it, you are texted a code or they email it to you or you write it down, whatever works for you. And then you also select from a number of preset secret questions and you provide your answer. So when it's time to vote, you call this number that is available just for this purpose. You give your unique identifier that you've been issued and the answer to your secret question. And then you vote. When you voted, your ballot paper is handed to a third party who reads the ballot paper back to you to confirm that the person has completed it according to your instructions. And that is how it's done. And just because I could, just for the fun of it, at the last election, I slept in on Saturday morning and at 9am when the polls opened, I phoned up and I voted from the comfort of bed. I mean, how luxurious is this? Now, that's a pretty civilised approach. 
but none of it is available in local government elections. They are getting better at making candidate information available in accessible formats. Hard copy Braille was available this year in some parts of the country. I absolutely applaud that. And there was quite a lot of accessible material online. But it did remind me of the old joke about the Braille on the drive through ATMs, because it's all very well having this accessible information. But you can't cast a secret ballot in these elections because you have to have someone complete the postal ballot for you. And then you either drop it in one of the many drop boxes around the town or you mail it off in time. But it is not an accessible secret process. And I've just decided I've had enough of this. This has gone on long enough. This is 2022. New Zealand has been a signatory to the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities for some time. And of course, it has a specific section on the right of disabled people to cast a secret ballot. And I think there are other parts of the convention that also cover this. It is just not acceptable. So I've started a formal complaints process now. I've started with my local returning officer, which is where the process needs to start. I've actually already got a reply back from the returning officer, who was quite sympathetic to what I was saying, but he claims that their hands are tied because of the current local government legislation. And he says they can't provide a similar system to the one that is offered in national elections because the legislation is different. And so now I'm going on to the ombudsman and various other government entities, but I am going to take this one all the way to the United Nations if I have to. I am determined that this is the last local election where I am not accorded the fundamental dignity and human right of a secret ballot. Damn it, people fought and died for the right to participate in a democracy. And that was everybody. Not everybody excluding disabled people, but everybody. And it's not as if there aren't ways to get this done. As all the good infomercials say, but wait, there's more. I've been advocating on something else this week. I've been submitting to the Economic Development, Science and Innovation Select Committee. Now, they are hearing submissions at the moment on the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill. You may remember, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, that I made a submission to the Radio New Zealand Charter Review, and I included that submission on this podcast so you could hear what it's like when you submit to a select committee orally in New Zealand. In that Charter Review, I talked about all of the hassles that I had getting our public broadcaster Radio New Zealand, RNZ for short, to do basic things that a public broadcaster should do, like make sure that every tweet they send with a photo attached has an alt text description attached to the photos, like ensuring that disabled people are respected by refraining from the use of ableist language, something that there's an awful lot of on RNZ, and making sure that disabled people are heard on the airwaves and that this programming from our public broadcaster covering disability issues. And my submission must have been persuasive because the committee recommended that a clause on disability be added to the RNZ Charter. This is its governing document, the things against which the organisation is measured. Then the government came along and decided, ah, we are actually going to merge our radio broadcaster and our TV broadcaster to form one new public entity. And so all of that work that I had done on that submission and putting that research together was moot. And I was very disappointed. 
that having made that case and having that case accepted by the Select Committee, when the government put this bill together for Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media, they did not specifically include disabled people in a clause in the Charter, nor did they make sure that content could be consumed by disabled people on the same terms as the cited. When you're building a new organisation, that is the perfect time to get these sorts of foundations right. So I have talked about some of the operational issues that demonstrate that this is necessary. One of them is we have had some audio described content on our TV screens for quite some time now, but it is not available on demand. And all the way back in, I think, late 2013, I took a complaint to the Human Rights Commission about this because it is discrimination. If sighted people can watch a program on demand, but a blind person can only watch the audio described version of that program at the time that TVNZ chooses to screen it, unless they have some means of recording the content themselves, then that is less favorable treatment. And that's what discrimination is less favourable treatment. And so I talked about that and a few other issues, and I have to say I got a really favourable reception from that select committee. I am quietly confident, I am hopeful, that there will be a clause in this new charter for this new public entity that covers disabled people. So watch this space. I know I will be. The final thing I wanted to tell you about was this extraordinary thing that's been happening for some time. It actually began on the day that the Queen died. My Sonos port died on the day the Queen did. Isn't that sad? It was obviously traumatized by the whole thing. The Sonos port, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a device that has RCA inputs and outputs. I think it also has some optical connections as well. It has airplay, and it allows you to connect external peripherals into or out of a Sonos network. And we're heavily steeped in the Sonos ecosystem at Mosin Towers, as you probably know if you've listened to the show for any period of time. The use that I put this to is a cool one. I've got an Otacon TV adapter, which is compatible with the Otacon Open S1 hearing aids that I use. The Otacon TV adapter is a great product. The audio it produces is super cool, and it's got very wide coverage. I can walk around the house and tune in via my hearing aids to whatever that Otacon TV adapter is playing. So by plugging the TV adapter from Otacon into the Sonos port, it essentially turns my hearing aids into a Sonos device, and I can send anything that Sonos can play directly to my hearing aids. It's groovy, man! Well, on the day that the Queen died, I was going to Nicola's graduation. That's my youngest daughter. She was graduating with a diploma in fashion design, and it did involve getting on a plane because she studied some distance from here. So while I was preparing to do all of that, I wanted to hear the coverage. And I do what I normally do and just tuned into BBC Radio 4. We had that playing throughout the house on various Sonos devices, and I wanted to send that audio to the Sonos port so it would come through the TV adapter as I busied myself around the house. Well, obviously, this is one of the biggest breaking news stories of the century, and it let me down. It didn't work. Normally, this thing is just a flawless process. I don't even have to think about it, but it wasn't working. So I found myself getting sucked into the vortex of trying to troubleshoot this, because if there's one thing that frustrates me, it's when technology gets the better of me. I feel like I'm in a 
battle of wits or something to try and sort something out. And the first thing I had to work out is where does the problem lie? Is it the TV adapter bit from Oticon that plugs into the Sonos port? Or is it the Sonos port? I fixed that pretty quickly by unplugging the RCAs from the Sonos port and just tapping them with my finger. And over my hearing aids, when it was tuned into the right program, I could hear the of me touching the RCAs. So I knew that the TV adapter was picking up the signal. That at least told me that the Sonos port was the culprit. And I unplugged it and I plugged it back in again and did all sorts of things and it was just not producing any sound. So I gave up. I had to get in an Uber and get on my plane. Later that day, I decided to have another go when I got back from Nicola's graduation, which was a festive and happy time. Her mother and I were both there for that. I got back and I thought, let's have another go at this. The next step when you have an issue like this with a Sonos product and you don't have to do it too often is that you do a hard reset. And in the case of the Sonos port, there's a little round button on the back of the port and you hold that down while you're plugging it in. It essentially sets up the device as new. Well, I had forgotten. I don't know why I had forgotten this. That the Sonos port is one of the few Sonos devices with a really inaccessible process. Normally, you just tap the button on the back of a Sonos device and it plays a little tune and you are set up. In this case, you have to connect to a Wi-Fi network, which is created temporarily by the Sonos port. And you have to type in an eight-digit number, which is printed in small friendly letters on the back of the device. Not so friendly, actually, because it was quite difficult to get that in the camera view. I used Ira. I think in the end I asked Heidi to help, and we finally got the eight-digit number. I typed in the eight-digit number, and then it said, push the round button, and we'll complete the setup. I pushed the round button again, and nothing happened. Nothing. Not a sausage. And then when I got Heidi over here to have a look, she said it's not even flashing like it's supposed to. It's like this thing is not well. Well, we were heading off to Europe, so I left it alone, mindful that when I got back from Europe, with the Rona no less, I would have to have another crack at this. I got back, had another go. Heidi kindly tried a few times and attempted to make it go, but it just would not go. So in the end, I contacted Sonos via online chat. It was not easy as a blind person using a screen reader to get into that online chat, I have to say, and that was very disappointing. By the end of the conversation with the Sonos guy, I was really paranoid. I mean, we've got 15 Sonos devices around Mosin Towers, and they've all been rocking my Unify network for some time without any kind of glitch at all. Our Sonos devices, up until this point anyway, are rock solid on our Unify thing. But then he started taking me down this rabbit warren of, oh, maybe you need to check this setting and this setting on your Unify network. And I'm thinking, this cannot be right because they're all working fine. They've been working fine for years. And then I had this epiphany, epiphany. I thought, this guy is just leading me up the garden path here. This is classic buck passing, where they blame everything else except their product for a problem. And he's trying to deflect, because I realized the problem is happening before I even make a connection to our Unify network. It's not joining the network, because when I press the button, 
it doesn't join the network. And I decided I'd give it a go setting it up via Ethernet because it's got a couple of Ethernet ports in the back. So I tried hardwiring it and then setting it up. It wouldn't even turn on at that point. It didn't even come up in the Sonos app. So I said to Bonnie, I think this Sonos port is defunct. It is kaput. It has ceased to be. If we hadn't nailed it to the perch, it'd be pushing up the daisies. I said, I think I need to get another one. Now, that's a pretty expensive potential mistake to make because if I bought another one and it didn't work, then clearly it would be my network because I couldn't possibly work out how it could be. And then I'd have to throw myself on the mercy of the vendor to get my money refunded. But I was pretty confident. So I ordered it online. It's pretty hard to find Sonos products at a discount in New Zealand, but I did find one at a slight discount, waited for it to arrive. Then I had to get the eight-digit PIN for this new one, which of course was different from the other one. Thank you, Ira, for your help with that. And it turns out I was absolutely right. Absolutely right, Jonathan. Yes, absolutely right. And it came up, it's working fine. Knock on the wood, it is still working fine. So who knows what it was that caused that Sonos port to give up the ghost, except perhaps out of sympathy for the Queen. But it is great to have my Sonos port back. It is a very handy gadget. You can also use it to plug things in, of course. You can get, if you're into turntables, <laughs> it astounds me how many people are, you could plug a turntable into a Sonos system this way. Or even something like a Victorita Stream if you're playing books, and they can be blasted over your Sonos. So it really is a handy little gadget. And I'm very pleased to have resolved the issue of the Sonos port. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. It's important to me that Mosin at Large is fully accessible, and that's why every episode is transcribed. Accessibility is in the very DNA of Numa Solutions, and it's thanks to their sponsorship that transcriptions are possible. As we discuss on this show regularly, sadly, the world is not as accessible as we would like. And it's frustrating to find that you're on a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting, somebody's running a PowerPoint presentation, and not only is it not accessible, but they haven't given any thought to accessibility before. When the time is right, take that person to one side or maybe talk to the IT manager in your organization and tell them there's a fix for this, and it's called Scribe for Meetings. It seems like such a simple solution, but there's a lot of incredible magic going on under the hood. All someone has to do is upload their slides as little as five minutes before the presentation is due to run. Numa Solutions will do the magic behind the scenes and provide a fully accessible version that you can follow along with. There's no need for you to be excluded from these presentations any longer, Scribe for Meetings provides the answer. To learn more, head on over to numasolutions.com. That's P-N-E-U-M-A solutions.com. Hey, Jonathan, this is for us. First, I just want to say congrats on 200 episodes. You know, I've been there ever since, and I've been loving the podcast ever since you started producing it. And yes, I've been there since the blind side. And yes, 
FS cast days, if you recall, I've been sending in FS cast contributions quite frequently. I want to give my quick thoughts on iOS 16, and yes, I am using Eloquence. This is a dream come true for me. This is a dream come true. I remember even on a Tech Talk presentation, uh, especially you, Jonathan, one time you had a Tech Talk presentation on Accessible World, and one time, even five, six years ago, I, I remember seeing, well... Isn't Eloquence ever coming to iOS? And several people that I've talked to, everyone was like, no, 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 that's never happening. That's never happening due to licensing issues, due to all of that sort of problems. Well, of course, never say never just because, because this was a big surprise to not only to me, but to the entire blindness community. Now, the one thing that I needed to ask you, and I don't know if you've experienced it, is why is Eloquence pretty fast like in the betas when you did the demonstration of the new voices in the first beta it was perfect like it sounded pretty much the jaws rate but whenever i slow it down it's like the equivalent of the slowest i can like get it to 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 like actually jaws level is like 35 percent. then it drops down to like i don't know how to explain it it goes pretty slow like, it's not the JAWS equivalent, so you can't really speed it up like the JAWS equivalent, or at least that I know of. Maybe you have some tips or ad or advice on this, and so I would like your feedback on this. Also, why is it that punctuations, they're like, they're announced pretty weirdly, like they're not exactly JAWS-like. But like, for example, you know how, for example, when there's a point O of something, Eloquence says, for example, iOS 16.0. Well, on the iPhone, it says iOS 16.0, like the old voiceover, like the traditional voiceover mechanism. Good to hear from you, Faraz, and thanks for suffering through so many podcasts over the years. I think it's important that we don't confuse text-to-speech engines with the screen reader. Voiceover obviously has its own characteristics and its own implementation of eloquence. So it isn't going to behave exactly the same way that it does on JAWS just because it's eloquence. It's just like, for example, if you use one of the vocalized voices, there are some slightly different characteristics of those voices in terms of how they voice punctuation, available speech rates on JAWS or NVDA or Narrator for that matter, and voiceover and talkback. They will all be different. If people are finding particular showstoppers, then by all means contact Apple, support some feedback. I know they did make some changes to the way that Eloquence was working during the beta cycle in response to that feedback. Good afternoon, Jonathan and all Mosin at large listeners. I was just listening to the episode that you have just released, uh, that is episode 200 at the time of this recording, and congratulations on such a milestone as well. It's an incredible I think I really enjoy the podcast and thank you for producing it. I want to answer someone's question regarding the notifications and double tapping. What I have noticed is uh, now I am running iOS 16.0.2 on an iPhone 13 Pro. What I've noticed is that I double tap, it doesn't work. And then... If I double tap again on the same notification, it will work just fine. This is either from the notification center or also, in my experience, from the lock screen as well. Thank you very much, Michael. That's Michael Chopra with that little hint. 
and things do seem a lot more stable with notifications in iOS 16.1. It's fascinating to me. Every time that a new major release of iOS comes out, notifications seem to go through a rocky period. Greetings, sir, Jonathan. I had a real problem um, with a same sound issue uh, going from one iOS version to the next, and it was fine 15. I think it was what quiet kind of quiet in what 13 and then it was fine in 14 fine in 15 and quite again 16 and that and I just oh it was so bad this time that I couldn't even use use the earpiece on my phone I had to uh, um, use the speaker and just so I can hear hear things. But I went into settings, uh, phone, and I turned off noise cancellation, and that seems to be fine. I've got my full volume back. I can lower and increase the volume of of the call and and all sorts of stuff. And now, um. It's not so quiet. And also, I was finding that I used to, like, go from home screen one to home screen two or whatever by by touching the thing just up, just above the docs, you know, the pages. And and uh, that was not working when, when it... And so uh, I, I thought, well... Oh, I'll just come try this, and and I I got my hand and at four fingers extended, and I put it on left left margin, and dragged it to the, I mean from the right margin over, and dragged it over to the left, and that seemed to change the pages for for me. Yeah, which. You guys would talk a little bit more about e- Eclipse. I wonder how Eclipse in- enjoyed the, the whole whole trip, you know, the big long time plane ride and being in, in London and all this kind of stuff. That's Angus McKinnon. They're good to hear from you, Angus. Well, the reason why we didn't talk about Eclipse on the trip was because Eclipse didn't go on the trip. It takes six months of paperwork to get a dog into New Zealand, and six months before we left, we didn't know we were going. And apart from that, there was a grueling amount of travel, and I don't think it would have been particularly humane to Eclipse to take her with us. So Eclipse didn't go with us. She was babysat by Heidi and Henry, the wonder son-in-law. So a number of people are experiencing the issue that Jana brought to our attention in episode 200 regarding voiceover audio being extremely quiet the moment you initiate a phone call or anything, it seems, that is using the phone API. Now, in Jana's case, and in my case, this involves using made-for-iPhone hearing aids. But if you are having trouble doing this with the earpiece of your phone, which is something that I never use, you can give this tip of Angus's a go. Keep in mind, though, that if you use made-for-iPhone hearing aids and you have hearing aid compatibility turned on, noise cancellation is going to be off anyway because you can't have them both on. You can't have noise cancellation on and hearing aid compatibility mode on. 
So for me, that one has made no difference at all, but it might make a difference to you depending on your settings. I think this is one of those things where some people are experiencing it and being incredibly impacted by it, and others who are not think that somebody's doing something wrong or doesn't know something or making it up. An example of this actually was in the 16.1 beta cycle where when beta 2 came out for a bunch of people, the magic tap stopped working, myself included. The magic tap would only actually work to answer a call and end a call, but playing and pausing audio, starting and stopping dictation, probably some other functions, just completely stopped working and there was nothing that you could do. And for those who were not affected by this, whose magic tap was going on fine, everybody was saying, well, what's the matter with you? It's working fine. Go away. Stop being a complainer. But it's pretty debilitating when the magic tap stops. So I think this is one of those settings. Actually, another one is the inversion of the colors that stop the app switcher working. So a lot of people were complaining about the app switcher being completely inaccessible. And people were saying, what are you talking about? It's fine. But for those with invert colors turned on, it was not fine. So somewhere deep in the bowels of the iPhone, there is something that is causing audio to go really, really quiet for some people the moment that a call is initiated. And if you're not experiencing it, great, but it's pretty impactful for those who it's affecting. One of whom is Mary Ellen Earls. And she says, in answer to something you put out in Podcast 200, voiceovers volume is almost non-existent when I wear my AirPods Pro Maxes on any Zoom call. I have recently switched to the PC so I can hear where the mute and raise hand controls are. It is most frustrating because I too have hearing aids which play voiceover directly into them. I am surprised Apple has not made this issue a priority. Well, hopefully we can assist with that by reporting this to Apple, by sending logs. To be fair, I have not done that. I don't really even know why. I've just kind of thought, well, maybe it's something unique to my setup. And I guess this is one of the beauties of Mosin at Large, that we can compare notes and we can be encouraged to report what is a very serious issue in the hopes that it might be resolved. Louis Mayer says, in your Mosin at Large podcast number 200, a listener wrote that they had problems with low voiceover volume during calls and Zoom meetings. I used to have this issue, but it has not occurred lately. I have an SE 2020 and I'm using iOS 16.02 and I use iCloud backups. During the call or Zoom meeting, a way to bring up the voiceover volume is to turn voiceover off and then back on using a triple tap on your home button. This is not a permanent fix, but it seemed to fix my immediate issue during the call or Zoom meeting. I very much enjoy your show. Well, thank you, Louis. When I'm in my office, I often have my iPhone connected to my mixer through a cable that's got a 3.5 millimeter jack at the end. And of course, it has to have the lightning adapter at the end of that. And if voiceover is faint on a call, I do find that you're right. In my case, because I don't have a home button, I triple tap the side button and I turn voiceover off. I triple tap it again and it's on. And that does often seem to help when there's something plugged into the lightning port. But sadly, it never helps me if I'm using my made-for-iPhone hearing aids and voiceovers dropped way low on a call. I can toggle voiceover off and back on again until the cows come home and it still doesn't make any difference to the volume. 
Here's Marissa who says to the listener who made the possible suggestion about having a way to reset voiceover to factory defaults without having to reset the phone, I wholeheartedly agree and would advocate for this. I think this should have been implemented a long time ago because there is nothing more frustrating than having to reset the phone just to see if that fixes it. I will say that I have experienced the issue she was talking about related to voiceover volume being very low on a call. Hi, Jonathan. This is uh, Dave from Oregon. I ran across something that might be of an impact for um, folks with uh, either using headphones on their iPhone or like you and I um, using uh, hearing devices with MFI connection. I stumbled on it. It's under sounds and haptics, and it's called headphone audio. And it has to do with the audio level, where it cuts back the audio levels. It's the first item there, other sounds and haptics. To go in there, I had mine on, and I heard a certain level of voiceover. When I turned it off, voiceover dropped, which doesn't make sense. But you can actually set that. And I'm just wondering if that has an effect on the loudness of what we might be experiencing in phone calls, when they override voiceover, etc. Thank you very much, Dave. I gave this a try because it's something that had not occurred to me. I've played with all kinds of settings with respect to this, and I thought, oh, maybe this is the magic bullet. For me, at least, it didn't fix it, but I'm including it here just in case it's something that someone can try in case it does. I had mine switched off. I don't like settings that mess with volumes and things out of my control, but I did turn it on and tried making a call, and then I turned it off again, and it seemed to have no effect with respect to the voiceover volume when the call was in progress. Hello, Jonathan. This is Chester Smalley. I'm here in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I have a couple of questions for you about my iPhone. Uh, it's a 2020 SE that I've had since December of 2020, and I've just installed iOS 16.2. Uh, but before I do any of that, I should thank you for the hard work that you do and the very enjoyable presentations that you make, all the books you've written, and the work that you've done for blind people around the globe. And I can't say that I agree with everything that you have ever said. <laughs> you might not even agree with everything you've ever said by now, because I know as we age or as we grow, we sometimes change. However, none of that is my point. You do excellent work, and I thank you for it. I enjoy it, and I will continue to listen. All right. The problems I'm having with my 2020 SE in combination with 16.2 specifically is that when I turn the phone off, power it down completely, the power-up process is nowhere near as blind-friendly. I hate the word accessible, incidentally. It's nowhere near as blind-friendly as it used to be. It used to be when I'd power my phone down and bring the power back up, I would eventually hear, and it was always very quick, actually, about 10 seconds, I'd say, maybe, well, maybe 20 seconds, I would hear that the screen curtain was off. That's what voiceover would tell me. Put in my passcode, and away we go. Now it's very inconsistent. One thing I've noticed when I turn the phone off, the home button is locked, completely locked, and uh, I press the power button on the right side, to bring up the, the screen. And it seems as though I have to do it a number of times. Eventually, I suddenly find that I'm invited to put in my passcode. But I have to actually gain access to, I have to interact with the screen, you know, by swiping around and what have you, 
I've shown it to my sighted wife a couple times, and she looks at it, and she, first there's no Apple sign, then suddenly there is, and that's when I can put in the ID. So anyway, so there's that. And I wonder if you've heard anything about that kind of difficulty with other people. A couple of friends of mine, a couple of gentlemen who live nearby, installed iOS 16 before I did. Three people actually talked about this. Two said that voiceover didn't come up at all, which I didn't find to be true. It does come up, but they were encountering that when they had not in, upgraded to 16.2. They were finding that when they powered their phone down and then brought it back up, voiceover didn't come up at all and they needed sighted assistance. I have a feeling that maybe they weren't quite patient enough because I think they were experiencing the same thing I'm experiencing, but I'd just like to hear your take on it. All right, that's the first thing. All right, here's the second thing. Since March of this year, I have been playing with a mixer attached to my old desktop computer. My wife and son collaborated or conspired, depending on how you look at it, to see to it that I have a mixer. I'm kind of a frustrated broadcaster. I'm not that good at it, but I always enjoy it, and I really enjoy the production side of it. I'm still using Goldwave. I haven't graduated to Reaper yet. I will eventually. Okay, so I've got this nice little mixer. It's a Behringer 12 Dash 4, I believe, is the model number, or at least part of the model number. My real problem is that when I plug my phone into the mixer, attach it through the various cords and cables and adapters that I have, it works for a while. For example, now. Messages. 100 message. Sports folder. Four apps. Messages. Edit mode. See, so you've got my, There's that's my phone you're hearing. You're hearing my phone. I've, uh, I'm using Eloquence for the fun of it on my phone, just to see how it how it sounds and, you know, see if I want to work with it. We'll see. I may not continue to use it. So as you can hear, it's there. All right. Now I unplug it, detach the plug from the from the phone. I have, it's a lightning connector on one end, and I've got the, the quarter-inch plugs on the other that are plugged into the mixer. All right. Plug the lightning back into the phone, and you won't hear it through the mixer anymore. The way I got the phone to work through the mixer was by turning it off, by powering it down, which is why I wanted to also mention the power-up problem I'm having. I powered the phone down, brought it back up, put in my passcode, there's voiceover, plugged the phone into the mixer, works great. Unplug the phone, plug it back in, no phone on the mixer. Thanks for your audio message, Chester. Appreciate that. I have not experienced any issues myself with starting up the phone, but I do have a different phone from you at the time of putting this together. I'm still rocking the iPhone 12, pending the arrival of my iPhone 14. So I'm going to throw this one open and see if others have had the same kind of experience that you have with respect to booting the phone and reliably determining that voiceover is on. I don't know what's going on with your mixer, except to say that if you unplug the lightning adapter and then you plug it back in, and yet audio is coming from the iPhone's speaker, even when you've got audio plugged in, that is very unusual to me. Just to speed up the contribution a bit so it doesn't consume too much time, I edited out references that you made to a soup drinker device, partly because you didn't talk about the soup drinker and so it would have set everybody's devices off. So it sounds like there is some electronic mechanism in the mixer that is affecting this potentially, that somehow it's shutting off the channel and that that is happening for some specific reason. I'm not familiar with this mixer. I don't own any Barringer products and I don't know whether this mixer is completely analog or partly electronic or fully electronic. If it's a fully electronic digital mixer, 
I think it's probably something that's worth contacting bearing a tech support about, particularly given that, you know, we heard the demonstration with the phone, but you also did mention that you have some soup drinker issues as well. So when you've got two devices going into the mixer and they don't constantly operate reliably, that suggests to me there's some setting or issue with the mixer that Behringer should be able to help you address. So sorry, vagary on both your questions, but maybe somebody has the same mixer as you, and I'm sure that others have the same phone as you and may be able to chime in with some comments. If you would like to do just that, 864-60-MOSIN is my number, 864-606-6736. That number is in the United States. You can also do what Chester did and attach an audio message and send it in to jonathan at mushroomfm.com, or you can just write the email down. To sunny Chessington we go in the UK, I'm being an optimist, and Brian Gaff is writing in. He said, I listened to the item in which you talked about audio description and mentioned adverts. Well, yes, here in the UK we do have these. Not everyone has it, and if it's put out on a channel which does not use audio description at all, this goes away as well. At the moment, the main ones seem to be Procter & Gamble products, such as fairy washing pods and softener, as there is action showing somebody using the products with just sound and no talking, although towards the end you can hear what it's for. Then there is, predictably, guide dogs appealing for money. We have also seen Waitrose Supermarket on their food products where they show old English pastoral scenes of making cheese and harvesting crops and the AD tells you how natural their products are and they come from the UK. I don't believe a word of it myself, but otherwise you get music and captions. Virgin Media 02 tend to audio describe their longer commercials, which tend to tell a story such as how a rapper can collaborate with musicians over the fast broadband, etc. But the shorter versions tend to be just voiced over on normal sound at a very garbled rate to fit it all in. There are others like beauty products, other shops and services, and some government campaigns, but by no means all. We will see on the run-up to Christmas shops like John Lewis doing it on their very long adverts, I'm sure. As for audio description generally on the TV, it's all a bit hit and miss, like it is on DVDs. It seems that often the audio description is made by the broadcaster, and when another channel shows it, it does not go with it if the company which made the show is a different one to the broadcaster. Also, some channels not on the main multiplex feed do not have to put it out by law, as it's considered their viewing figures will be lower. However, with online feeds, in my view, this is less relevant these days, and it's a scandal that many of these internet feeds have no audio description version, even if it had it in the cinema or on the original channel. Indeed, some just don't have the option at all. I notice we get a New Zealand show called The Broken Wood Mysteries, and by the sound of the audio description, it sounds like it's made here in the UK and I wondered if you get the benefit from that there. It's another place I'd not want to live, a bit like Midsummer, where they seem to kill off half the community every week. 
Thanks, Brian. Audio description is wonderful, isn't it? But it is a bit of a minefield. And soon I'll be speaking with Joel Schneider, who's one of the pioneers of audio description, and he's still actively involved. And it's a really fascinating chat, which we've already recorded, and you'll hear that in Mosin at Large quite soon. But I do make the point that there is a lot of audio description which has been made, say, by a British network. And yet when we get it here in New Zealand, as you rightly say, the audio description hasn't come with it. And so New Zealand audio describers have to do the describing all over again, which seems an incredible waste of a precious and scarce resource. I'm not familiar with the show you mentioned. I don't watch a lot of TV in New Zealand. But if it's audio described here, it'll be audio described locally. But that is super intriguing that you have some ads that are audio described in the UK. Time to go to Canada for this email from Kelly Saperja, who writes, Hi, Jonathan. I hope you and all the Mosin at Large listeners are doing well. We've had a hot summer here in Moose Jaw, with temperatures staying at around the 30 degrees Celsius mark most days. I have a couple of questions I hope you and the listeners can help me with. One, I'm experiencing a problem with Fantastical and iOS. When going through my appointments, the majority of which are recurring, I'll sometimes find that the year has jumped to 2024. I'm assuming this is the app's way of saying that 2023 is possibly going to be a bad year. I have to press the Today button to get back to 2022. I find this behavior annoying, to say the least, and was wondering if you know of a way to get Fantastical to stay at the current year. I don't think I've seen that one, Kelly, so I'm not much help. But one thing I can say is that Fantastical's tech support is absolutely outstanding. I've not had to use it often, but on, I think, the two occasions I've had to use it, they've been diligent, their responses have been timely and thorough. They do seem to care, and they care particularly if you've got some sort of accessibility issue there. So do get in touch with Flexibits support, and I'd be interested to know how you get on. Two, I was interested in the comments given in episode 192 regarding e-readers like the Kindle. I had thought about getting a Kindle at one point, but decided against it as I already have the app on my iPhone and I am not certain if there's any point in getting a device that pretty much does the same thing as the app. I agree with you, Kelly. I got a Kindle to play with it when Kindles became accessible. And I'm one of those people that just does most things on my smartphone. It's one device to carry around, one device to charge. Of course, people would argue it's also one device that if you lose it, you're really kind of down the creek, aren't you? Because you've lost everything. But I have not done so yet. So for me, having multiple devices is a bit tedious. Some people would also argue that the good thing about having a dedicated device is that you can read on your Kindle and leave your iPhone free I think that focus modes have helped on the iPhone a lot. So I've got an auto focus mode. When I go into Kindle, it sets a focus that I've created called DND with VIP. So I can be disturbed by important apps and important people in my life. But other than that, notifications are muted until I check them manually or I come out of the Kindle app. But they're not too expensive and they've done a nice job with the accessibility. Kelly continues, at the same time though, I've been considering purchasing a soup drinker device such as the Echo Dot. However, I keep feeling conflicted. 
I have the Soup Drinker app installed on my iPhone and enjoy asking it various questions, similar to what I would ask Siri when she's in a cooperative mood. The question I'm posing here is, do I really need a device that basically does the same thing? Or are there things it can do that the app and the iPhone, for that matter, cannot? Good question, Kelly. And I think this will come down to personal preference to some degree. If you don't mind opening the app and summoning the assistant that way, then I guess you're happy the way you are. We've got Mosentar set up now so that we can yell at the soup drinker from anywhere. I mean, we literally can say a wake word anywhere in this house and it will respond. Of all the digital assistants, I like the soup drinker the best. I find that it is responsive. It says sensible things when you ask it questions. And I'm interested that I feel this way because I did get a Google Home. It was given to me. And I expected that because of Google's search engine, the way that they can pass information, I would get better information from Google than the soup drinker. It just made sense to me. But actually, sometimes I find the soup drinker is just giving sensible, clear, concise answers. We also have many more devices in this part of the world that can work with the Amazon Echo ecosystem than work with Apple's HomeKit. I think the whole complexion of this is going to change significantly when Matter comes on stream. This is this new universal home automation standard, and it can't come a moment too soon. But it will take a while for Matter to filter through. So, for example, with the Amazon Echo, we can control the heat in our house. We've got the Ring Video doorbell, and that doesn't work with Apple HomeKit either at the moment, despite repeated promises that it will. We can control our Samsung TV, turn it on and off, that kind of thing. We can't do that with Siri either. So for us, it really does work to have yelling access to the soup drinker anywhere that we are because it does so much. And this is another thing that you can do with an actual Amazon Echo device. You can set up routines. So at the moment, it's pretty cold and horrible as I put this together. And so we have a routine that I've set up in the app, which the Amazon Echo devices need to be around to look after. And that is that at 4.30 in the morning, because we get up at 5 a.m., we have the heat pumps turn on. So you can set a routine to come on at a particular time. We also have other devices coming on at different times for different reasons. You can also give routines a command. For example, we have one that says heat the upstairs. It turns on the two heat pumps upstairs at Mosin Towers. We have heat the house, which turns heat pumps on upstairs and downstairs. And we just say these things anywhere that we are and they happen. So for us, if I had to pick one digital assistant that I would not want to be without, it would definitely be the soup drinker on the Amazon Echo devices. Some of the Sonos devices also have it built in. You can add that if you want to. And even my new Sony noise-canceling headphones have it built in. So I think it's a really great tool, and I'm very glad that we're so ensconced in the Amazon ecosystem for virtual assistants. Others may well like to comment on why they like to have Amazon Echo devices, as opposed to just using the app. On Twitter, follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news, and links to things we talk about on the podcast. 
That's Mosin at Large, all one word on Twitter. Greetings, Mosin at Largers. My name is Stan Warren Luttrell. I recently attended my 50, count them, 50-year high school reunion, the Nifty 50. And because of that, I managed to go down to the inland East Bay area in the town of Pittsburgh, California. That is where I went to school. And there were some interesting things that I noticed. And, of course, having graduated 50 years ago, I decided to go down there and visit with many of my friends. And it was very interesting How do I say this? Because I was the only blind individual in my graduating class. Now, there were people that I knew that graduated before me. Now, the interesting thing was there was a a woman who came over to me and talked about how she knew me, but... I don't know, we must have been in a parallel universe because she mentioned that I played the accordion. Now, no, uh, I was not interested in accordion playing, but one of my blind friends who graduated earlier than I did played the accordion. And I've noticed... Yes, friends, I'm going to say this. There, I have a theory that all blind people look alike <laughs> because I've had a series of events happen that have had nothing to do with me or anything to do with what I would do. Let's go back in the Wayback Machine and... Go back years ago, and one of the people that I knew had a tendency to beat up on women. I don't do that. I would never do that. But one day, my a friend that my dad worked with saw me and said, I saw you beating up on some woman. No. That did not happen. And I there's nothing that I could say to change his mind or what passed for a mind. And then, fast forward in time, a friend of my nephew's claimed that he saw me sitting on a railroad track. No. That is something that I would never do. I'm a chicken. I don't want to do that. I love being here. So that's number two. Then there was a third individual who used to repair cars in the town in which I used to live. And one day a woman came over to me and thank me for repairing her car. Now, trust me, you don't want me working on your car, even if it's a self-driving one. 
No, 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 no. These are just a few of the experiences that I had. And let's add a fourth one that has nothing to do with anything. But there was another woman who came over to me at the reunion and said she wanted to take my picture. I said, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But I have an affliction where my eyes are normally closed. It's hard for me to open them. And she said, oh, Stan, can you open your eyes? Now, there was something I wanted to say, but I, I really endeavored to be nice because there's nothing I could say. But these are just a few of the things that represent my experiences. I'm sitting here laughing, Stan. I mean, there's a serious side to this, especially if you're being accused of something like beating someone up. That's horrible. But Bonnie has had very similar experiences. I don't recall having as many experiences like this, but Bonnie gets them. She talks about how people think that she was located somewhere or did a certain thing, and she looks nothing like the blind person that they're talking about. Bonnie is quite short of stature. In one case, the woman that they were talking about is very tall, completely different complexion. I think even a different race from Bonnie, if I'm remembering correctly. But this stuff happens, I guess, because people just see and remember the blindness and they don't remember anything else. Extraordinary. Perhaps others have experiences like this. 86460 If you want to be in touch, 864-606-6736. That's the phone number, of course. You can attach an audio clip to an email or write the email down. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com. Hi, Jonathan. My name is Chad Beach. I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I actually just found out about you. At least I don't think I'd heard of you before this. Maybe three weeks ago, a good friend of mine named Monty, who actually runs his own internet radio station that I actually do a live show at once a month, who I've known for about uh, three and a half decades, played an opening part of your podcast, Mosin at Large. And what really piqued my interest is you use jam jingles even on your podcast. Very interesting choice of uh, New Day. The package for KDKA in uh, Pittsburgh. Very, very cool. And it works beautifully uh, with your podcast and with, of course, the name Mosin at Large Podcast. Just so cool about that. And quite a long time before then, I have heard of Mushroom FM because of one of the Too Cool package IDs that you had done for it that was played on the Jam Personal Cuts uh, montage on their Personal Cuts page. Not knowing that was you. Well, now I put two and two together. So first of all, I'm uh, curious, when was your first exposure? Find out specifically about jam jingles. I'm curious. Did you work at a station that used them? Or um, were you just looking maybe when you were thinking of starting Mushroom FM and happened to stumble on them on the web and it went from there? I'm kind of curious about that. I love the concept of Mushroom FM. I love the way... uh, uh, the hosts do their thing and so on. I also wanted to ask you uh, a couple things about Station Playlist. When I do a live show, I notice from when I hit the button to when the, the track starts, whatever I play, when I'm in manual mode, of course, there's about a one second or so delay. As Monty put it, kind of like the old turntable days. But I have heard your 
presumably voice tracks through the uh, voice tracker on your shows. And I remember one in particular, you were going into Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. You said something about Queen and you went right into it. And I heard you hit the button and it started virtually right away. So I'm curious, one, do you just use the voice tracker when you put together your shows? The Station Playlist Voice Tracker. I assume you do because I heard your demo from a few years ago just recently on your Mushroom FM site. And if you do, is there a way, as far as you know, to control how quickly when you're in live mode or unassisted or manual, how quickly a track plays after you hit the button to start? In this case, the enter or even turning on the A, the automation again over that track, doing it that way too. So I'm curious if there's a way to set that. Also, on your uh, demo, which I think was back from 2016, you were just doing uh, the SPL recorder and you were just doing dry tracks. I know in more recent versions of the voice tracker, you can actually hear the intros and outros now. And I'm curious if, uh, if that's how you do that now, because I notice you hardly ever talk over an intro. In fact, uh, usually uh, you have a, a jingle or some other thing even before a song most of the time with you, I think. And even if it does start right away, you don't usually, I don't think, talk over an intro. Some do, some don't. So I'm curious, um, is that how you do that now? Or do you perhaps do it through Reaper, uh, using the voice tracker and doing uh, the external audio editing through your DAW, which I believe you use Reaper? I used Audacity, which of course means you can't hear the intros or outros. I'm told you can just basically spacebar through everything from starting the recording slash playback of the outro to turning your mic on to when you hit the next intro or whatever else you've inserted. And then... Uh, turning your mic off and then turning the recording off. I'm told that's how it kind of works. So I'm curious about that. Then do you also sometimes like, cause I know a lot of the shows, including yours, will play like twice in a day, like 12 hours apart. But I heard you on one actually say coming up at 4 p.m. Eastern time. And it was in the what, two or three o'clock hour that I heard it. So I knew you were using US time, which made me wonder, man, does he use two like feeds, internet feeds for the same station, one for the US and one for like Australia, New Zealand and all that. but. My guess is that uh, you actually went in and left most of the show alone, but did a, redid a particular track to promote uh, the afternoon version, if you will, because normally that show would play, uh, I guess, way overnight, early in the morning, which would be afternoon your time. So uh, I'm curious if I'm hearing right that you uh, sometimes redo voice tracks or certain voice tracks for a repeat of your show to to uh, further customize it for, uh, for that time of the day. Are you, by chance, an amateur radio operator? Do you have a ham license? And do you, uh, do you get on the air very much? Uh, I haven't heard you talk about it, but that doesn't mean you don't do it. So I'm just uh, kind of curious about that. And um, kind of what even be curious about kind of how your licensing, as far as um, internet licensing and all that works there where you are. Did you subscribe, by chance, to like Live 365 so you could stream here in the U.S.? Or pay your BMI, sound exchange, all those separately. How did you do that? Well, it's good to hear from you, Chad. And I know all about Fort Wayne, Indiana, because I'm pretty sure that that was where GW Micro got started a long time ago. Now, this is the ultimate how the sausages made contribution. <laughs> Let's see if I can remember most of those questions. When did I first encounter jam jingles? Oh, when I was a child, we had radio stations here in New Zealand who would play jam jingles. And in fact, I think in those days, they would have been Pam's jingles in the early 1970s. 
We had an offshore radio station called Radio Hauraki, and it broke the government monopoly. It was a very similar situation to the one that was endured in the UK, where they also had offshore radio. But the outcome was very different here. The offshore radio station in New Zealand got a license to broadcast on land, whereas the BBC really kept their monopoly after the big offshore boom finished in the UK because of quite draconian legislation. And commercial radio didn't come to the UK until 1973, but that Marine Offences Act was passed in 1967. So anyway, Radio Hauraki, when they came ashore, ahoy, ahoy, when they came ashore, they had an amazing Pam's Jingle Package, and there were a number of radio stations in New Zealand that did jam later. And yeah, when I worked in commercial radio, we also had on some radio stations jam jingle packages. And I'm a radio geek. I've collected this sort of stuff all my life pretty much. And so I decided when I reached the grand old age of 40, actually, and the Mosin explosion had been going a long time by then, that I would treat myself to a Pam's Jingle Package. And I used to listen to a website called realradio.com. I think it might still be around. But when Real Audio first came to the internet in the mid-1990s, this Uncle Ricky's realradio.com was amazing and it allowed me to catch up with a lot of American radio air checks from the golden age of pop radio. And I fell in love with those older Pam's Jingles then. So when I decided to treat myself to this Pam's Jingle Package for the Mosin Explosion, I decided I would just pick some of the ones that I really liked. You're right, the package we use for Mushroom FM is called Too Cool, and it's that kind of oldies format as well, and well spotted on the Mosin at Large jingles. You don't often hear podcasts with jingles, and so when I started Mosin at Large, I thought, well, that would be a really nice way to distinguish it and just give it a bit of a classy sound, and we qualify because we don't make any money from the podcast, or for that matter, from Mushroom FM. In fact, it costs me lots of money. We qualify for the personal cuts package, and you can submit whatever you like and ask if they can re-sing those for you. Plenty of fun. All right, now in terms of station playlist questions. Yeah, I've been using station playlist for a very long time. I was the first blind person to use station playlist and introduce it to the blind community largely through the fact that back then in 2001 or 2002 I think it was I was directing ACB radio and I also had the main menu show and so we featured it there I demonstrated it to colleagues on ACB radio interactive in particular my serial number is like two Literally two with a whole bunch of zeros before it. So I go way back with Station Playlist long before they had Creator. Just the studio package and a little thing that you could put in your system tray to do basic scheduling. So I've seen it come a long way over the last 20-ish years that I've been using it. And he's continually done great work for the blind community and accessibility with respect to that package. So too, of course, has Brian Hartchin with his phenomenal Jaws scripts for Station Playlist Studio. Before Studio, I was using a package called Ots Duke, which was later renamed, I think, to Ots DJ. Now, that thing had phenomenal latency. I do know what you're talking about. With Ots DJ, if you pressed a key to start a track playing, it was instant. It felt fantastic. And I think what's happened over time is that I've just become used to working with the latency. That said, I wouldn't say that it takes a second or more for tracks to start playing for me. 
There could be a number of reasons for this. It could be that the tracks haven't been scanned because that can often help with the automatic crossfading engine. It could be relating to where the tracks are stored. If you have tracks stored on a network attached storage drive or a slower drive, it might be taking a while to access them. But I find that in the normal course of events, it might be about, I don't know, half a second, maybe maximum when you press the key to start playing the track before it starts playing. I have my track stored on a solid state storage device. I make sure that there's no huge gap at the beginning of the track. All those things are important, but I haven't seen the kind of latency you're talking about. So there are a number of things that you could look into there. The Mosin Explosion used to air every week, and I used to do it live before my most recent job change. And that was a really great experience it was a fun show so i've done a lot of live stuff with studio and in fact brian hartgen and i have produced a tutorial on station playlist studio called broadcast it brian has subsequently done addendums to it as station playlist studio has developed but yes these days the mosin explosion is voice tracked And I had forgotten that I did that demo back in 2016. The technology has moved along a lot since then. I use a combination of techniques when I'm voice tracking the Mosin Explosion. So typically the way the playlist is organized is that every second track has a jingle before it. And every other track I do talk up to the intro. So I try and mix it up a bit and I use a combination of techniques. Sometimes I will go through the full thing. I prefer to use the enter key rather than the space bar. That's just a personal preference to cycle through here the last about 15 seconds of the song and then talk after the song, start playing the, the next song and talk to the song ramp. Sometimes I do use the automated mode because when we add tracks to the Mushroom FM library, every single intro in the library is timed. And so we can talk right up to the vocals just by using the automatic technique as well. And so there's a series of radio buttons using Brian's scripts. It's really easy to select the radio button that you want and use it accordingly, depending on how you want to work with the track. So I use it in a range of ways. And though I don't go back and revoice track anything, I have a pretty busy day job here as a chief executive of a national organization in New Zealand. So I tend to do my show quite early in the morning before my work day starts and I don't have time to go back. But there are shows on Mushroom FM that only air once. The regular weekday lineup repeats on a 12-hour cycle, but other specialist shows do not. And so even if you're listening at two in the morning, it's still appropriate for me to say that it's coming up at four Eastern. And yet Mushroom FM had to pick a time zone. And so we picked Eastern US time. Amateur radio was always something I meant to get around to doing. I haven't done it yet. Technology got in the way just as I was thinking about getting my ham license. I got my 300 board modem and never looked back, but you never know. It may not be too late for me. In terms of licensing of internet radio in New Zealand, we have a completely different system. Obviously, we're not subject to US legislation, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and all those good things. It's a very simple process here in New Zealand to license an internet radio station. They want to know whether you're making any money off it. If you're not, you pay a flat fee every year that they invoice you for. And that covers all of your licensing. It's not even necessary to maintain logs. It's not necessary to adhere to any kind of 
uh, issues relating to how many songs from the same artist you can play or anything like that. It's a really straightforward process. And I'm so grateful that we can license Mushroom FM in New Zealand because it makes things much simpler. Phew, I think I've covered most of them, Chad. Thank you very much for all the questions and for discovering the podcast and Mushroom FM. And good luck, of course, with your own internet radio initiatives. Hey everyone, it's Mike Fair, and I just thought I'd review a keyboard I have. I've had it for about a month now, and I really like it. I think it's ideal for blind users for a number of reasons. It's called the Nufi Air 75. Nufi is N-U-P-H-Y, N as in Nancy. It's manufactured in China, but designed in the U.S. It has different keycaps. It's that basically this has been designed as a really versatile travel keyboard. 75% is the size of the keyboard. That means you're missing the number pad, essentially. You have the function keys, you have escape keys, you have arrow keys, home end, page up, page down. There's an FN key, which is a function, extra function kind of thing. Uh, you hold it down like you would a control key and you hit other keys to do things related to the keyboard. So one of those things is connecting. You hit the FN key and then numbers one through four to switch between connections. And you can hold in FN and then one, two, three, or four to put it into pairing mode for that slot. And then you connect what you want to. You can then switch between them with FN and then one, two, three, or four. You can also hit FN up arrow and down arrow to adjust the lighting level. So of course you can use that to just turn it right down uh, the RGB lights, which are useless to blind people, and gain battery life doing that. The keyboard is is about uh, 30 centimeters, a little over that in width, probably 32 or 33. It is a good size for the lap. It's a bit bigger than a Keychron K3, which was my previous really favorite board. Uh, this surpasses the Keychron K3 in a number of ways. One of them is that it reports the battery level of the keyboard to the battery widget on your iPhone. So if you're using that battery widget and you have the keyboard connected by Bluetooth, it will tell you how charged it is. That's a really nice detail to know. You also have tactile switches on the back. So on the very back, there's the port that you can connect a USB-C cable to charge or directly plugged to a computer. There's also two switches on the very back, one of which is for wired and off. It completely off is all the way to the right on my keyboard uh, with it facing away from me. And then wired is the middle setting and then wireless is the farthest over to the left. It comes with a 2.4 gigahertz dongle if Bluetooth isn't quite reliable enough for you. You can plug that into a USB-A port on your computer, and then you have a wireless connection that's a bit better, some say, than Bluetooth. I have had no Bluetooth issues with this keyboard uh, pairing it with my phone. One of the reasons for that is that the top of the keyboard is aluminum. It's all aluminum all the way around, except near to the bottom of the keyboard. On the bottom, it's covered with plastic with a metal plate in the center that protects the battery. The battery is 2,500 milliamps, and that lasts uh, quite a while. You can get about uh, 30-something hours using a reasonable amount of RBG light, and it's even longer if you have it uh, disabled with the lighting disabled, which you can do. The switches, you can choose between red, blue, or brown switches. It, uh, it kind of defaults, at least on Amazon, it defaulted to brown. 
Brown is sort of the mid-range. It's tactile, so there's a quiet bump that you feel. It doesn't make any extra noise, but you feel it when you press down on the key. Red switches are linear. You press down, and it's a smooth press all the way down. And blue uh, switches have a click to them. So if you want that extra tactile sonic feedback of that click as you press a key, you can have that. I am glad I went with the brown switches. I did get the reds, and I've used some to replace for my arrow and command keys. So I've used about 34 of those switches are now reds because I replaced them. They're hot swappable, so you can remove the switches you don't want and replace them with other switches, either three or five pin. And uh, doing that is pretty easy. It comes with a little tool that you can use to pull off the keycap, which is also quite easy. You can get different colored keycaps for this and replace the keycaps with other ones, so that's nice. And that is also a point in favor of this keyboard over the Keychron because it's a lot more easy to find a keycap set that will fit this keyboard. It's a low-profile keyboard, so it comes with low-profile switches, Gateron switches, and that is a pretty well-known company that makes these switches. And the keycaps are PBT keycaps, which have a texture to them. It, it's not kind of smooth. It's more like, if, if you remember buttons from arcade games, for example, it's kind of that texture. There's a bit of roughness to it. And I quite like that. Apparently is much more durable than uh, the ABS keycaps. So uh, I feel very good about the keys. It's a nice feel to type on this board. The keys are of a good size. And uh, of course, you can replace them if you like. Sound-wise, we can give you a little sound test. That's I'm hitting fairly hard, and that is uh, kind of what it what it sounds like. Uh, so you kind of I can't hear any ping from the aluminum. It's a nice, very smooth press, and uh, quite good to type on. So everything's tactile, like the switch to turn it to the different positions, on, off, and uh, wired wireless is tactile. It's on the outside. You can feel it and you can feel the position it's in. There's also a switch to choose between Mac. If you have it all the way to the left, it's Mac. It's Apple Mac. And to the right, it's Windows. So you can choose between those two operating systems. And then it'll also pair with iOS and Android devices. That is done with Bluetooth and it just kind of switches to that device and uh, the function keys still behave as if it's a Microsoft or Mac setting, depending on which one you set it to. So you do want to choose the the closest to your uh, device that you're going to be using this with. So I found it really, really nice. It's good to know the battery level. It's uh, good to feel where the switches are. You can make sure it's off, you know, none of this leaving it on accidentally. You can get it with a case, and that case is an extra $39. Uh, The keyboard in Canadian dollars, I'm in Canada, so uh, is $169 for the keyboard. And if you want the case that that you can get for it, that's an additional $39. The case is a a folio-style case that you can fold over. You can fold it back, and it makes a good lap comforter. You can have it folded back on itself. Or it can fold over, wrap the keyboard completely, protect it. There's a little snap that can snap in place and hold it. There's a magnet in the case that is in the bottom where the keyboard goes, and it kind of secures to the metal plate in the keyboard. It's sort of specially positioned to do that. Holds it really nicely. It's not very strong in terms of magnetic pull, but it's sufficient to do what it needs to and uh, gives you a nice secure feeling as you're typing with this thing on your lap. Or if you're on a, a desk, you can fold the folio case back and have it be kind of a stand for a phone or tablet. 
So that's another option that you can do and have somewhere just to stick your tablet or phone where it's easy to get at and uh, sort of held at a, a good viewing angle uh, for sighted people and a, a fairly good angle for us uh, as well. So all in all, I'm really happy with this purchase. It turned out better than I had even hoped that it would. I had a pretty good idea from the reviews I'd heard of it, what I was in for, but this e even surpassed that just in terms of ease of getting it going and having everything be t so tactile. So really good feeling for this keyboard. It's going to serve me well for years. It's durable. I feel very good about this. So hopefully that'll help some people in the market for a mechanical keyboard. Apparently the pricing people seem to think it is sort of reasonably priced for what you're getting with this keyboard. And I would tend to agree. It's really well built. Uh, the parts are, are really good. It's a solid thing. And uh, it's behaving marvelously. Marvelous. That's marvelous. Thank you, Mike. And if you weren't paying attention at the beginning, but by the time you heard that review, you were paying attention, a reminder that the name of that keyboard, which does sound great, is the Nuffy Air 75. That's N-U-P-H-Y Air 75. The Opticon which is old technology now, keeps coming up because nothing has really replaced it. And a real power Opticon user is Petra. She writes in, her, her Opticon user is actually legendary, legendary out there. And she says, as you said, there is still a very active group of Opticon users. There are actually people who are actively working on either a new Opticon or modernizing those that are still around. I know of at least two, and I am directly in touch with one of them. I may even have the chance to help test his adaptation myself. In my opinion, the Opticon as it is, is still amazing. It doesn't need to be updated with new apps for new languages or symbols. It just takes your brain. She also continues, your episode 194 with the Envision Glasses interview was great. Now... I just have to save up the funds to get a pair. I'm waiting with bated breath for your experiences with them. Transcripts of Mosin at Large are brought to you by Numa Solutions, a global leader in accessible cloud technologies. On the web at numasolutions.com. That's P-N-E-U-M-A solutions.com. Now, if I were to boldly say on... Now, if I... Large podcast that Scott Rutkowski is a dictator, you would think, how over the top is this? I hope he's sued for such an assertion. But it's true, you know. Scott Rutkowski is a dictator, and I can prove it. G'day, Jonathan and everyone. Wanted to pass on some information here about a new feature. Well, at least I don't know if it's totally new or has been in Word for some time, if you're an Office 365 subscriber. So today I was just playing around with the ribbons in Word, and I happened to just press the Alt key and do a Shift tab a few times. And I found this checkbox that said voice dictation checkbox not checked. So I pressed the checkbox or hit the space bar on the checkbox. And it said dictation toolbar, hit F6. So, okay, I hit F6. And then you get options such as start voice dictation, settings, help and close dictation toolbar. And I played around with it, did some dictating, absolutely accurate. And I was really impressed with the accuracy of the dictation. One feature I did enable under the settings was auto punctuation. 
so it'll listen for your inflection in your voice and put in the appropriate uh, punctuation there. So I thought there has to be a faster way of getting to this feature if you're in the middle of a document and want to dictate. So I wasn't able to locate a hotkey. So I rang up the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk. And after holding on the, on the phone with them for a bit, they advised me that the Alt and the Grav Accent key to the left of number one on the top of your keyboard indeed will bring up the toolbar for the dictation. So anywhere in Word, you can hit Alt and the Grave Accent key and then hit F6 when you hear the little sound. Then you can hit the space bar on Start Voice Dictation, do your dictation and then press the space bar to stop. Then you can hit Escape to get rid of the toolbar and just edit your documents. See, see, told you we was a dictator, told you. Thank you very much for that useful tip, Scott. Cloud-based dictation in these Microsoft apps really has come a long way. And actually, if you're using Windows 11, you can use dictation by holding down the Windows key and pressing the letter H from anywhere that there's an edit box. I find sometimes it does some trippy things, but a lot of the time it works really well. And I guess that must be eating into the revenue of companies like Dragon because if all you want Dragon for is dictation into edit fields, then it's getting pretty marginal now in terms of the difference. You can obviously train Dragon to recognize certain vocabulary, other things like that. So there are still some advantages in specific situations. If you want full control over the computer, Microsoft does now have a voice dictation feature in Windows 11, but I suspect that Dragon is more comprehensive and more programmable, but it's getting much more marginal. In the end, of course, it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter because Nuance, which manufactures Dragon these days, is owned by Microsoft anyway. So six of one, half a dozen of the other, as they say. If you use the Office cloud-based service, I do know that there's a way there that you can upload an audio file, for example, this podcast, and get it transcribed. It doesn't work for us because we have so many different voices and various accents. We really need humans to do it accurately enough. But if you are just a single person and you want a transcript of something, then you can use the Microsoft Office cloud-based feature to send it an audio file and get reasonable content back. I guess that is competing in a similar space to services like Otter. So definitely worth checking out. I guess I have been typing for so long that I find it's a different part of my brain, I think, that composes text to that which composes things like this when I'm just talking into the microphone. And I find it hard to change the mindset. So I don't use dictation as much as I thought I would, but certainly for quick emails, that kind of thing, it's really handy. Perhaps grab a cup of coffee while I read you this email from Debbie Armstrong. And if you're quick enough and you finish the cup of coffee before I finish the email, you may have another use for the cup. Debbie writes as follows. You probably won't want to dunk your iPhone into your coffee. But did you know an empty coffee cup is one of the best free accessories your iPhone works with? There are two tasks for which my clean cup is essential. Firstly, it acts as a stand when I wish to call Ira or be my eyes. It's also great if I'm doing FaceTime, Skype or Zoom, since I often get the camera positioned exactly where needed simply by tilting the phone in the right direction while it is inside the cup. 
try different cups and also try putting a bit of cardboard in the bottom of the cup if the phone needs to be a bit higher. When I need to use Seeing AI to look at a computer monitor in my job, I often prop the coffee cup atop a stack of books. While on vacation at a relative's house, I used this trick to read the television to find out what channel I was on and whether closed captioning was on for my father-in-law, who was very hard of hearing. If you were like me, you probably have a kitchen cabinet full of cups you rarely use. Put one on your desk, nightstand, and counter, wherever you need to access your phone hands-free. The second use for a coffee cup is as an amplifier. Try it! Start some music playing and insert your phone into a clean cup. And listen how the ceramic or metal sides of the cup increase the volume and improve the sound. Experimenting with different cups will help you decide which gives you the best results. While cooking, I often place my phone into a cup to protect it from a wet counter while I listen to a podcast. There you go. This is Mosin at Large, coming out of a coffee cup near you. Hello, Jonathan and all Mosin at Larges. This is Tom from Italy. I've been listening to your show for over a year now, as well as following you since the very early days on Main Menu and then FS Cast. I enjoy your content wholeheartedly, and let me inaugurate my first contribution with a question to the whole community of Mosin at Large regarding mobility. I consider myself a rather skilled cane user. I've been traveling independently since I was 18, and have found it a challenging yet extremely rewarding endeavor. However, there's one aspect which does pose a challenge, which on some occasions is nearly insurmountable how to walk straight during street crossings, especially if you live in a big city where extra wide streets with multiple lanes are the norm. I know that in many cities, especially in the US, the two traffic light poles at either side produce a distinct sound so that it's easy to follow and get straight across. However, here in Milan, lights do play the exact same sound at the exact same time thus making following the sound extremely difficult to hear and follow, provided they play any at all. Do any Mosin at Large listeners have any suggestion? I'd love that. Well, thank you for writing in after a year, Tom. I hope we will hear from you regularly. And let's open this up. Keeping in line as you cross the street. Does it just take practice? Are there techniques you can employ to improve your straightness? Let's see what... Expert travellers have to say, 864-60-MOSIN is my number if you want to phone in in the United States. You can attach an audio clip or write something down. Send that in by email to jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Let's go to New Zealand for another contribution from David Harvey. Hi, David. Hope you're doing well. I'm having issues with our KFC website and app. When I go to reset my password... I get a message saying email and or password not invalid, even though I've reset my password. Tried to do this over 50 times already. And getting to their customer service is an absolute accessibility nightmare for one particular part. When there's a set of menus that uh, you've got to select. When I go to select complaint and website with JAWS, I can select, go, go to the menu, select complaint, 
tab over to the website option, check that box, but pressing the tab key does nothing. I've told the people through Messenger about my problem and why, why what's happened, and I said to them, look, I'm having issues with your customer service desk. It's not very screen reader friendly through parts of it. Why can't we take action against American companies who aren't meeting their ADA and 508 obligations? The American companies, so we should be able to go, because they're a franchise outside the US. They're American companies, so we should be able to do something regarding ADA and 508 compliance. Because this is annoying and it's frustrating. Yes, it does sound very frustrating. In terms of remedies that are available to you, in the case of a brand like KFC, there's a New Zealand organization that has a license to use the KFC brand. So they are a New Zealand entity who are using a brand under license. Plus, a company has to comply with the laws in any country that it's operating within. So as a non-US citizen not living in the United States, you have no redress under another country's piece of legislation. There are several things you can do. I mean, obviously, you could use the Human Rights Act and see how far you get with that. You could potentially try and contact KFC's parent company in the United States and just simply tell them that if they care about accessibility, they might be quite interested to know that their franchisee in New Zealand appears not to, and it could be that that company would put some pressure on the New Zealand entity. I think it's unlikely, but it is a strategy that you could possibly attempt. But I suspect, given where we are at the moment, your best option is to see if you can do some mediation under the Human Rights Act. Hi, Jonathan. John Lipsy here. Quick question for you. Um, haven't really been catching the podcast for a while, got busy. I started a YouTube channel, just a lot going on in my life at the moment. Uh, but you mentioned something very interesting last week in the podcast where you were talking about Castro, and I really hope that they can get their issues resolved between themselves and uh, Pinecast, I think you said, because I love Castro and I don't want to have to switch apps. I don't relish that idea at all. But you had mentioned an ability that I did not know Castro had, and I think I would love this ability if you could give me a little bit more context as to how it works. I mean, yeah, I suppose I could poke around and figure it out, probably, but I'm here, and I'm just curious. You said that Castro, you can take a YouTube video and put it into Castro so you can, you know, take it with you and pause and fast forward and rewind and do all the things in a, in a Castro-like experience instead of dealing with the YouTube experience and whatever iteration it chooses to be. How do I do this? Do I just share, like go on YouTube, go through the share sheet and have Castro be there as an option? Or is there a more workaroundy kind of way to do it? That is exactly how you do it, John. When you're playing a YouTube clip, go into the share sheet in the YouTube app and you will find an option there called sideload to Castro. And when you choose that option, it will download the YouTube clip and put it in Castro. Just an update on this. A few weeks ago, I started to receive messages from Castro users who hitherto, in iOS 16, were experiencing issues getting Pinecast-related podcasts and some others, like Mosin at Large and various other things, who said, it's fixed now for me. It's working again. And I was delighted to hear it. And I have to say, I was disappointed to note it was not working for me. But just in the last week or so, 
it has started to work for me. I mean, I don't listen to my own podcast, but I do subscribe for monitoring purposes. And now I can play Mosin at large again. So I don't know whether there's some sort of fix that is being progressively rolled out, but it does now work for me and several other people again, whereas initially with iOS 16, it was not working. That is very encouraging indeed. Here's an inquiry from Eden, who says, I know not many people use Skype anymore. I had to use it because someone I needed to communicate with insisted on Skype. It froze up my phone and it overheated my phone. VoiceOver wouldn't work and we couldn't shut the phone off. It was burning up. This is a new SE 2022. I also noticed that Skype doesn't even seem to work well with my Windows computer. I had to just delete Skype from my phone before another message came in. That's very frustrating. I just wonder if it was just me. Wow, Eden, I haven't used Skype for a very long time, but that sounds pretty dramatic. I'll uh, wait and see whether anybody else has any thoughts on this. 86460Mosin is the number. 86460667366 in the United States. And Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is the email address if you want to attach an audio clip or just write something down. Hi, Jonathan. This is Tony. And uh, I thought I would tell you about my cochlear implant experience. I had bilateral cochlear implant surgery on December 6th of 2021. And a week later, I went uh, in for activation of my cochlear implants. And as far as what they sounded like when I was activated, it's very difficult to describe. But I remember having this toy when I was a kid. It had a microphone, but uh, at the other end of the toy was this. It had this cup that you could extend out, but you could turn this knob or something and you could make your voice have different effects. Like one of them was a robot and kind of sounded like a robot in a tunnel, I guess. It's extremely difficult to uh, describe. It'd be like if I heard it, it'd be like, "Oh, I know it when I when I hear it" or something. But yeah, those YouTube videos where audiologists are, you know, or try to uh, give people an idea of what cochlear implants sound like through uh, the uh, simulations now. I listened to a few of those, and uh, no, they don't sound like those simulations, really, to me anyway. But I ended up uh, getting uh, cochlear implants from Advanced Bionics, and uh, I have the the uh, Nadia M90 sound processors, and the Advanced Bionics, I think they're like ultra-high-res or something like that. I can't believe it's uh, in December. It's going to be a year since I've had cochlear implants. And uh, it's just like, wow, what, what a difference at the being able to hear uh, uh, reasonably well again. I can actually determine the location from where sound is coming from, even more so than when I had hearing aids. Um, yeah, because I had to get uh, 
cochlear implant because I had my hearing aids were no longer working for me. Back in 2021, I had some uh, sudden hearing loss episode one day as of, you know, well, you know how fun gnawing disease is. And uh, I just was like, oh, I got to wait two or three days for this to clear up. And then the next day, I uh, had uh, another episode, and that's very unusual because I, you know, I never had two of those episodes happen and, you know, consecutively. You know, usually they're like months or maybe a year apart or, yeah, it's, but uh, I had Unitron hearing aids when I was using hearing aids. They were okay, I guess. But before that, I had the Starkey Halo i110s, and they were made for iPhone hearing aids. And I must say that uh, more often than not, audio uh, when streaming to them would not be that great. It would just uh, just degrade. And so when that happened, I would have to stop streaming and then restart the stream again. But uh, these NADA M90s connect directly to in the Bluetooth settings on, you know, the iPhone, the Mac, whatever has Bluetooth. And you can pair up to two devices with them. But you can only use one device at a time. But when you pair, when you decide, oh, let's say I have my uh, NADA M90s paired uh, with, let's say, my iPhone and my Mac. And then I go, you know what? I want to listen to something on my Apple Watch. And I pair my Apple Watch to the sound processors. What happens is that the sound processors forget one of the pairings. So you either, I either have to repair my Mac or repair my iPhone, depending on which one it forgets. I think it forgets the device that was paired prior to the device that was that just got paired per currently or something. You have to take the batteries off the processors when you uh, put them in pairing mode and they're in pairing mode for about two minutes or something. Yeah, and I have the uh, headpieces on the back of my head on the left and the right side. Uh, yeah, so that's where those are. And I can actually use uh, headphones with my... Uh, cochlear implants. I like to, to extend the headphones all the way down because I don't like a lot of pressure being placed on my ears because I get sore ears and that's one of the main reasons I hated wearing uh, headphones when I was wearing hearing aids is my ears would often get sore. One of the things I used to do was when I had hearing aids was I had the uh, ear pods so I would uh, put the wires behind the hearing aids and let the ear pods rest on the microphones. But with these cochlear implants, I actually have microphones on the tops of the sound processors themselves, as well as uh, two uh, microphones called T-mics, which are resting just above my ear canal. So my ear canals are open. No molds. It's great. I also have the uh, TV... Uh, adapter, which is great. I've actually tested out on a uh, soup drinker, and uh, I went to the to Best Buy, 
and I tested it out on a uh, Chromebook. So with the uh, TV adapters for the Advanced Bionics NATA M90s, uh, the, the TV adapter has no battery, so you have to plug it into a USB port or a power supply of some kind to give it power. But as far as latency goes, I would say that uh, these sound processors have a little more latency than my made-for-iPhone hearing aids did. Especially know it when you're playing audio games, because when you do an action or something, you know, like saying you're fighting a boss or something in an audio game, you have to kind of time it before you actually hear the audio cue in the processor, you know. So that that's when you really notice the effect. And when you're typing in stuff. But I wouldn't say the latency is horrible, but I don't think it's that great either. I mean, I've experienced worse latency with Bluetooth devices. Like, uh, I remember when I got a headset, like... Oh, 14 years ago or something, the latency with that thing was terrible. I think they're the best thing that's ever that's happened to me in a long time. And uh, just know that things are going to sound a little strange for quite a while. And the, you have to be very patient with cochlear implants. And uh, I remember listening to drums and stuff. Like, that was one of the first musical things I listened to when I, I would say I did that a few days after being activated because things kind of sounded like, you know, robot in a tunnel for uh, lack of a better description uh, for about two or three days. Then they gradually started sounding normal. And then I remember listening to one of my brothers and a few people and, uh, well, it's weird because you'd hear this, but then, but I would hear this kind of being superimposed on, you know, sounded like on his voice or something. It was weird. But when I listened to drums, they sounded like somebody beating on one of those clay pots or something. But they definitely sound better now, and music actually sounds really good for being stream through a sound processor and everything, because, yeah, these, these uh, NADA M90 sound processors are great. And they also have an iOS app, which has a couple of unlabeled buttons. As a, I would say for the most part it's accessible, but uh, I had to actually label one of the buttons. And you can actually adjust how much environmental noise you want to hear. But uh, I found that uh, I had to drag my finger either to the left or the right on the iPhone, you know, like double tap and hold and then just drag. And then I would, I could adjust the audio balance or the uh, environmental sensitivity that way. Yeah, and I also have a remote where I can adjust that, and I can also adjust it right on the processors themselves. So when I'm listening to things and I want to uh, cut out a lot of environmental noise, I just I had my audiologist set it up so I could press the bottom of the multi-function button on the processors themselves and uh, for about a second, and that would... Uh, 
reduce the uh, environmental sound sensitivity. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Here's Jason White writing in. White starts with the letter W. And that's kind of fitting because we're going to be talking about the Braille letter W in more detail. Jason says, Dear Jonathan, your historical explanation of the history of the letter W in Louis Braille's system is, of course, accurate. But I thought a little more detail might be of interest. If one reads a French document that describes the Braille code, then one finds that the sequence of Braille signs follows the expected order. That is, on the third line, we have A to J with dots 3, 6 added, i.e. U, V, X, Y, Z, followed by signs that represent French accented letters, namely C with cedilla, E with acute accent, etc. The fourth line consists of letters A to J with dot 6 added. All of the signs represent French accented letters, until we reach dots 246, which is the OE diagraph symbol. Then, of course, J with dot 6 is W added for use in foreign words from Louis Braille's perspective. Interestingly, the punctuation signs follow the same order. They are the dropped letters A through J, specifically comma, semicolon, colon, full stop, question mark, exclamation mark, parentheses, open quotation mark, asterisk, and close quotation mark. It is notable that dots 26 is the question mark, and a single dot 35 is the asterisk. In addition, capital letters are preceded by dots 46 rather than by dot 6, as in English. Dots 3456 is the number sign, as is familiar. I hope I have the details right. Unfortunately, I don't have access to any historical documents, so I don't know to what extent the modern, uncontracted French code differs from Braille's original. Thank you once again for a very high-quality podcast, and thank you very much for writing in, Jason. It's all fascinating stuff. Hi, Jonathan. This is Vaughan Rolls from Australia. Love your podcast. Just sending a message in to raise this issue. When is Ira going to get some commercial sensibility and pragmatism into their business model and realize that five-minute calls are just not sustainable and not profitable and not helpful to the blindness community. People will say that I say this as a person who can afford to use IRA and that I'm taking away from those who can't. That is not true. But when you pay, as I do, $280 a month for the service and are waiting sometimes up to 20 minutes to be able to connect with an agent, those delays are simply unacceptable. It's a matter where there are free alternatives such as Be My Eyes for those that can't afford the service. But for those who can, they need to be able to get through efficiently and effectively to an agent. IRA needs to make some smart business decisions about where their business model is at. Is their business model being Santa Claus to everybody or are they there for a select core group of blind professionals and other blind people who can afford their service and who are willing to pay for same. I know there's been mounting frustration about this issue, Vaughan, and I understand Ira has tried to deploy some contingencies now to prioritise paying customers at points where there is considerable demand for agents. But, you know, if you're paying for it, I understand why you need it to be there, particularly if you're a professional and you're trying to use it in a professional context. So it is a dilemma. 
And it does feel to me like this five-minute free call thing is from another era, but perhaps the PR consequences of ditching it are just too great for Ira to contemplate. Who knows where it will go in future? You are a wealth of information, says Steph. Firstly, I'd like your opinion on whether Ira could do more for deaf-blind users of the service. I guess it is about whether a deaf-blind person can successfully use a phone or not. The agency I work for is open to allowing contractors to have a subscription, so want to ensure that all deaf-blind can access it. The contractors I'm referring to are all deaf-blind, so has to include them all. You do have the messaging facility in Ira, Steph. So in theory, if you've got a deaf-blind person with a Braille display and they're patient enough to do the messaging, then there is quite a lot that can be achieved with an Ira agent. I'm not sure what else might be done that Ira isn't already doing because that messaging service does exist. I suppose one other option is the integration of the messaging service in the web version of Ira, which I am really enjoying using. I'm using that web version all the time. My only disappointment is that it doesn't integrate with RIM yet. Uh, RIM is just so much more accessible than TeamViewer. It's developed by our community, predominantly for our community, and I would love to see Ira embracing RIM rather than inflicting TeamViewer on us. But I'm not sure if the messaging features are available in that web application yet. So that could be something that they could add in the future. Steph continues, I'd also like to thank you for such interesting podcasts, discussing Braille and keeping the use of Braille alive, giving your honest opinion on all that Apple comes out with. I look forward to each episode. I love hearing from New Zealand as well. And that is from Steph, who says she is still a Kiwi. And Eileen is also writing in about Ira. She says, hi, Jonathan, this is my first time writing to you. Well, welcome. Good to have you writing in. But I know you have discussed the issue regarding Ira and wait times. With Ira recently adding more devices that can access the service, the wait times for a paying explorer have increased and are unacceptable. I have been a paid subscriber to the service since the get-go and believe in the quality of the service to the blind. However, today's incident is frowned upon me in having to wait at least five minutes to be connected to an agent. I remembered that a few months ago, those individuals that had a paid subscription would be given priority in regards to procuring an agent, but this didn't occur and I needed to call back a second time and wait. I requested to speak with a supervisor, which I needed to call back into IRA to make my complaint heard and finally asked if I was using my minutes to register the issue at hand. Excessive wait times for explorers, which have since been placed back into my account. The supervisor's explanation was on how many agents would be necessary to staff for each given day. But with the expansion of IRA into new devices, and a comparison on the percentages of explorers to non-paying free five-minute calls could not be answered by the supervisor, which would affect the amount of agents that would need to be staffed for a particular time of day. I am sorry to ramble on, but as a paying explorer, I was angered by the fact that I needed to wait, attempt connection with an agent twice, and not have the priority policy enforced. In the last few weeks, When I wanted to use Ira, 
I have basically disconnected and opened up Be My Eyes for simple tasks. Fortunately, I have other choices when the apps on the phone will not perform the task at hand. Thanks, Eileen. Yeah, I had a situation recently where I was charging a bunch of batteries and I've got a battery charger that has an LCD display and it's just intuitive for me to give Ira a call. It's not something that an OCR app tends to be able to help with reliably and I could not get an agent. And for the first time in a very long time, I just called Be My Eyes. They picked up right away and I was able to get my query answered. But it is really frustrating to pay this bill every month and find that increasingly you can't get an agent when you need an agent. But of course, this is one of the challenges of running a service like Ira. When you have agents who are trained and who are on the clock, Ira's paying those agents. So it's a really difficult balancing act. If you've got agents sitting there twiddling their thumbs because Ira has over-budgeted for the number of agents that are required at any given time, that's not a sustainable business model. On the other hand, something might happen. It just could be a fluke that you have a whole lot of people using Ira at a given time, and that's not expected. I'm sure that there are all sorts of algorithms that are doing these predictions now, given how long Ira has been around, and they will be able to look at past call patterns and do some extrapolation of demand. I'm sure that it is something Ira gives considerable thought to, and you are always going to have unpredictable spikes occasionally, but it just does seem that maybe the five-minute thing has had its day. Eileen continues, on another note, congratulations on becoming grandparents. Thank you so much, Eileen. We're nearly there. Baby's due in January. My granddaughter will be one next month, she says, and it's been a blast. Have fun and enjoy your travels. We were gone for almost six weeks to Italy between May and June. Here are some of my tips for you and Bonnie. One, we placed an empty duffel bag folder up in one of our check bags for all of our purchases. It came in handy. Two, I use the Pack It Organizer. That's a capital P and then a capital I for it, all one word. Organizer bags to keep everything straight and easy to find. Three, I brought laundry detergent and tied hand wash packets to do hand washing. I prefer the laundry sheets and they were easy to pack. Three, but I think we're up to four now. <laughs> I have a travel clothesline, which can come in handy for drying in hotels. Four, which I actually think is now five. <laughs> Make sure to have plenty of snack food for the long plane ride. Our flight only served us two meals, and I was hungry when that cold vegetable sandwich came around for the breakfast meal. Not appetizing. Yeah, that's an interesting one, Eileen. To get back from the UK to our house, door to door, it was about 38 hours of travel. And there were two long haul flights of about 12 hours duration. One was Air New Zealand and the other was Lufthansa. Now, Lufthansa had great Wi-Fi, by the way. You could pay for the premium Wi-Fi and actually do some sensible stuff with it. In New Zealand's Wi-Fi was so bad that they don't even charge for it anymore. It's abysmal. However, on the food department, the reverse is true. Lufthansa just gave you what they decided to give you. You could eat anything you wanted as long as it was that one choice. <laughs> this is us back in economy. Air New Zealand, on the other hand, gave you two choices with every meal, even in economy. And so you could choose, you know, the chicken curry or the roast thing or whatever for your evening meal and a cooked breakfast versus 
a continental breakfast towards the end of the flight. So it was nice to have that choice, but you didn't get that choice on Lufthansa where the food was pretty average, actually. Five, which I think is six, but I mean, hey, who's counting? Pack an empty water bottle that you can get through TSA and then fill it before boarding. Six slash seven. Rick Stevens has an app that you can download before leaving home. All sorts of walking tours and interesting information on where you will be traveling. We enjoyed them immensely. Seven slash eight. The question regarding checking luggage is a tough one. On our departure in May, we checked one bag and carry on one that was placed in the overhead bin. I had my jazz backpack, which went under the seat in front of me. However, on the return trip, we checked both bags because we used the duffel bag as a carry-on. Thanks very much, Eileen. We were pretty lucky with our bags. Uh, The only thing that happened was that Nicola's bag got badly damaged by uh, one KLM flight that we were on, and we had to replace that bag. But other than that, everything actually turned up when and where it was supposed to. We did have air tags and everything, and that was just wonderful because it gave us peace of mind in terms of being able to determine where everything was. I love to hear from you, so if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Who's in it for-